So, <laughs> in the past uh, two years, I've received a, a lot of advice, and, and maybe that's just the life stage I'm in. I finished uh, grad school about, we might be coming up on four years ago, so three years. My wife's shaking her head. Um, <laughs> in the last few years, I, I finished grad school, and people start telling you what to do to, like, be a real adult. Um, hasn't worked yet. Uh, but we've, we've looked for a new job, and all sorts of people have different opinions on how you do that, especially in church world. There's a break somewhere generationally between where you used to, you didn't used to tell anyone that you were looking for work. You used to just like drop hints here and there, and the association would get word of it, and they'd help churches find their way to you. Uh, but now it's like trying to find a, a job at Arby's. You just apply everywhere. Um, so different people give you different advice, and different generations know exactly how these things are supposed to be done. And then Ashley and I uh, decided to move to be closer to y'all, be a part of this community. And so more advice about how to stage your home, how to prepare your house to sell, how to sell a condo in the city, um, what kind of agent you should have, how to pick a house, how to pick a neighborhood. People just, they have very strong opinions on these things. What kind of mortgage should you get? You want to pick a fight with someone? Tell them the mortgage that they recommend is wrong. They will come after you. Um, and so we we buy a house and we get sailed in. Plumbing disaster, joys of home ownership. Now we've got to figure out how to rebuild like a section of the house and we get all this advice. You know what I would do. Now what you need to do is, well, let me tell you who you need to call. Well, the way you need to go, here's who you need to sue. Here, like all sorts of advice. And here's, if you really want some good unsolicited advice, go ahead and get pregnant. Um, <laughs> If you want to know what everyone and their neighbor and their grandmother uh, thinks, tell them you're going to have a baby. And it's just brace because it's coming for you. It was a tidal wave. of, And everyone else was annoying, not you people. I loved all of your advice. Everyone else was really... Uh, it was overbearing and annoying. You gotta, you gotta lay your baby this way and you gotta swaddle your baby. Don't swaddle your baby! Well, you gotta have this kind of crib. Well, that kind of crib, that probably causes cancer in your great-grandchildren. Like, everything is so hotly contested around how to bring a baby into the world and then how to, how to take them home and how to raise them and everyone's got really strong opinions and everyone knows exactly the way that it should be done. And a lot of us think that there are simple answers to how things should be done, natural orders to the way things should work. Like, you, maybe you've heard this one. Go to school, get a job, get married, have kids, retire. How often does that work? If there was ever a time in a sermon for canned laughter, it's right there. Like, we needed a laugh track ready to go. Um, we like to think that there are common sense ways to manage our lives that things tend to make sense, and we can navigate the world by a sort of conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom are ideas so accepted that they go completely unquestioned. Now, I was thinking about conventional wisdom, and I, I wanted to get y'all a good, serious list of good conventional wisdom. So I went to the most trustworthy source of information I could, Google, and, and did a Google search for a list of conventional wisdoms. But 
all I could find, actually, I was quite surprised, were pages and pages and pages of articles telling me and their other readers to ignore conventional wisdom. So we know that it doesn't work, uh, that you can't always have saved a year's worth of your salary by the time you're 30, that the fastest point between uh, two points isn't always a straight line, and even when it is, that path may not be available to you, uh, that the most obvious answer isn't always the right one, that sometimes life doesn't let you travel before you have kids or stay in the same career for 40 years or say yes to every opportunity that comes your way, and we all know this. Even Google knows this. The algorithm of our AI overlord has figured out that these things just aren't true. Uh, philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, one of my favorites, uh, says everything has been figured out. Everything has been figured out except how to live. And he's, he's got a good point. And yet, yet, we are shocked when our plans don't work out, when we don't get what we want, when the world doesn't seem fair, when the hardest working don't get the best opportunities, and when things don't follow the conventional wisdom. We're surprised. And this applies to our theology as well. Some people talk about Christians as treating God like a vending machine or a genie. Uh, put in a coin, get a snack, rub a lamp, get a wish. Offer a prayer, get what you want. And, and that's, that's worth hearing, but I think it's a little elementary. I think we're a bit beyond that. I don't think that's what we need from the pulpit this week. But I think that it's more likely that we treat God like God is part of some sort of formula uh, or a known chemical reaction, that God is some sort of natural property or mathematical principle. We think that God is predictable. Now, many of you are sitting there thinking something like, no, I don't. Come on, pastor, don't tell me how I think. Don't tell me what I believe. And, and maybe you don't believe that God is a predictable known property that operates like a part of a cosmic formula. And I, I know I don't, but I still act like it sometimes. You may not believe that way, but chances are that you have behaved that way. Like there's some sort of reliable, conventional wisdom that you can apply to God. But the God that we're dealing with has never worked that way. Think about the story of the Bible. Like, think about it with me for a second. If you're God, scary thought, maybe more canned laughter there. If you were God, and you needed to come up with a plan to set the world right, Let's say you're starting somewhere around Genesis 12. So you've created the world. Creation fell. We, uh, we did the flood. We tried turning it off and back on again. And it, it didn't work. It worked with the computer, but not with the world. Um, and now humans are estranged from each other and from you. Sin seems to be running the show. And it's time to make your first move to begin the salvation of the world. Would your first move be to pick a good dude so old that the book of Hebrews calls him as good as dead? Probably not. I don't think so. That wouldn't be my plan for the, the plan of salvation, for how we're going to save 
the world, you would think maybe that you would want to start putting the world back together with the attractive, young, strong offspring of the originals. You'd want to find some clear Adam and Eve connection to start redemption history. But God shows the world that this salvation will be different than the natural or expected order of things. God ignores the conventional wisdom and goes for an old couple, Abram and Sarai. And this is how the God of the Bible seems to operate. This is how God chooses to behave in relation to human history, in shocking and unpredictable ways, always in perfect alignment with God's character, but in ways more creative and more beautiful than we can normally predict. A theologian, Dr. Mark Ackmeyer, a uh, theology professor at Dubuque Theological Seminary, I do love the word Dubuque, uh, Dubuque Theological Seminary writes, the God of the Bible delights in defying conventional arguments, confounding established patterns, and pouring out blessing by surprising means in unexpected places. I'm going to do that again. I like that so much. The God of the Bible delights in defying conventional arrangements, confounding established patterns, and pouring out blessing by surprising means in unexpected places. Throughout the Bible, God shocks the reader by defying conventional wisdom, using the weak to defeat the strong, calling children to be prophets and shepherds to be kings. God uses drunks and murderers and whores to accomplish his purposes on the earth and to advance the story of the kingdom, a world set right, the story of justice and salvation. And when you think that God's plan couldn't get any crazier, the God of creation, the God of the angel armies, the God Almighty shows up as a single, vulnerable human. Not an emperor or a king, not a priest or a prophet, but a working-class nobody living in the countryside of a subjugated, occupied, defeated nation. And this God-man, this Jesus, sets about the work of showing us what God is like. And as far as the religious leaders could tell, all he did was break rules and go against the conventional wisdom of Jewish life. Uh, check out today's gospel reading. Let's get that up on the, the screen. I was going to say screens. Technical difficulties. Um, we are in the book of Matthew, chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain to eat them. I don't really know how you do that. Have you ever just eaten raw grain? Anyway, it's something you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, the temple. And he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law, that's kind of a jab at the Pharisees who are experts in the law, haven't you read that book? Uh, haven't you read in the law 
that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath. They do lots of work. It's against the rule. And yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, then you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. That's a nice troll. Gets in an argument with some preachers and then follows them back to their church. And there was a man there with a shriveled hand. Looking for a reason, they're trying to trap him, to bring charges against Jesus. The Pharisees ask, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it fell into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not grab it and lift it out? I mean, come on, guys. How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. I love that. Just like, I know what y'all are up to. I'm getting out of here. And a large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. A Amen. And this is how Jesus' whole ministry goes. Everything he says and everything he does shocks those around him. He breaks rules. He surprises people. He extends grace in unexpected directions. He subverts conventional understandings of what it means to follow God. One of his catchphrases is even, You have heard it said, but I say to you. And Jesus' story continues like this for his whole ministry, culminating with the salvific act of the crucifixion. The God of the universe hung naked and defeated in a place of shame. The cross meant to kill is my victory. Mm. The book of Hebrews is deliberate and clear to point out that the place of this execution is outside of the gates of Jerusalem. Outside Jerusalem. The ultimate act of saving sacrifice happens not in the seat of power, that would be Rome, or the center of religious life, Jerusalem, but outside outside the places of influence, outside the expectations of anyone. The conventional understanding was that the Messiah would come as some sort of conquering king. But then he is arrested, tortured, and executed outside of the city, completely outside the conventional religious expectations and institutions, which should seem odd. This should be really weird to you when you hear it. Because the event takes place near the temple, the place where God is known to be, literally where God is. If you asked one of Jesus' contemporaries, a good God-fearing Jew of the first century, where to find God, they would give you a street address. And that is how God had set it up to work. God rules from the temple. Sacrifices happen at the temple. Grace is distributed at the temple. But here, with Jesus, the perfect sacrifice 
The perfect act of rescue and the perfect outpouring of grace happens somewhere outside of the temple and outside of how anyone thought it would go down. It's hard to imagine that anyone even could have seen this as a possibility, that the promised deliverance would come from anywhere but the temple. God was doing something entirely new. In fact, the scripture repeatedly demonstrates that clinging too tightly to conventional expectations and normal ways of working can blind us to what the God of the Bible is actually doing. In fact, during a discussion with a curious Pharisee, Jesus explains that students of Scripture shouldn't be shocked when Jesus says and does new things. He says in John 3, 8, talking about the Holy Spirit and how it operates, that the wind blows where it pleases. You hear it sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. We serve an unconventional God. If we're going to keep saying things like, God works in mysterious ways, if we're going to hold on to our little phrases like that, we're going to have to start acting like it could be true. If we're going to lay down the idol of the predictable God in favor of a God whose movements are as mysterious as the wind and whose plans are perpetually outside the realm of the conventional, we may need to become people of unconventional faith. We need to adopt the resolve of King David, who when called out for his undignified worship style, a king shouldn't act like that. In 2 Samuel 6, his basic response to his critics were, you ain't seen nothing yet. You think this is wild? Our God is wilder still. You think you've seen grace? Our God's grace is inexhaustible. You think you know love? Our God is love. You think this church is unconventional? Well, wait till you meet Jesus. If you want to follow this God, you must be ready to let go of some of your expectations. Diedrich Bonhoeffer explained in his book, Life Together, it's a short one, you should read it. Uh, it's the manual for how he established his secret underground seminary under the nose of the Nazi regime. In that book, he says the only way to obtain true Christian community is to give up your dream of what it should look like. The only, only once the idol of the perfect life and the perfect faith and the perfect church full of perfect normal people has been removed, can the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the church truly emerge. If the only things that God is calling us to do looks just like the things that God has called previous generations to do, perhaps we are only listening to echoes of prior glory rather than accepting the gospel promises of an uncontrollable God who blows like the wind. Perhaps, perhaps you're in this room today and you're starving for something new, for, for change, for a new way of living to emerge. Or, or maybe you're here and you're scared. 
Maybe you feel like everything is falling apart, but if we have the strength and the courage to let go of the idol of certainty, if we can let that certainty go, maybe that falling could become a type of flying. God and God's kingdom and God's gospel have never, never been simple, safe, cheap, or easy. But they have always been the best. Don't look back. Don't slow down. Don't stop now. Be brave. Come, let us see what God is doing just up ahead. How, how might God be calling you to do something unconventional? Or how could God be calling you to be something unconventional? This is what I know. God is calling all of us to unconventional levels of mercy, to unconventional levels of hope, to unconventional levels of courage, unconventional levels of welcome, and unconventional levels of love. If you are honestly trying to follow Jesus, and you find yourself in new, unexpected, and unconventional places, it might just be a sign that God is about to do something unconventionally amazing. So be brave and follow God into the mystery. And I'm going to end with uh, the psalm that we start our service with today. I waited and waited and waited for God. At last, he looked. Finally, he listened. He lifted me out of the ditch, pulled me from deep mud, and stood me on a solid rock to make sure I wouldn't slip. He taught me to sing a new song. This new song was a praise song to our God. More and more people are seeing this. More and more people are receiving this. More and more people are getting on board with this. They enter the mystery as they abandon themselves to God. Amen.